So I want to say something about uh, just a sort of snapshot in time of where I think we are and what that means, just in terms of general atmosphere. Spend as short amount of time as possible just reminding everyone of the quip game plan. And I know many of you have heard that before, so I'll try not to be too uh, to labour that too much. But as I do that, to more specifically kind of try and give an honest assessment of where I think we are in those various um, uh, sections and what happens next. The timing is um, feels quite pivotal. I don't know how you feel, but I've come back after the luxury of a, of a Christmas break with a real sense of moving from a phase of preparation, you might even unfairly call it a sort of a phony war period, to it becoming very real very quickly. Um, and if you're not feeling that, I'd like to encourage you to start to feel it as early as possible. So just to give some examples, I mean, obviously, the operating framework for next year, which David uh, Florian and I uh, try to uh, shape under David's leadership to really set the terms of how money and quality will flow into next year's <coughs> position. And it is a step change from the environment which you've been leading in previous years in terms of the ask, both in terms of what you have to do in terms of delivering, protecting or enhancing quality and the, and the background against which you have to do that in terms of a much tougher environment. So that's a, uh, it, it will be looked back on as a, a significant moment of change in terms of framing the work you have to do and the requirement to drive change in your organisation. The, the kind of debate is becoming really live. We thought that might have happened before Christmas, um, but it's happening now. So uh, John and I are attending a public accounts committee tomorrow wrestling with productivity and why, if it has, it's gone down in previous years and why it might, uh, how it might change in the future. You can't pick up a, a newspaper without some kind of version of the debate of what's happening to us. And this wrestling in the public and the informed public's mind between trying to understand where this landing strip is between a protected service and the reality of the environment we're facing is an incredibly difficult piece of public policy and public understanding debate that we're doing and is beginning to hot up. Prime Minister's um, speaking now, talking about the relationship between protecting uh, future public service efficiency and the reform process. Uh, Andrew Lansley puts his bill into the House, one of the most complicated pieces of legislation of any kind, let alone health legislation ever taken through Parliament. I, I understand he's appearing on the Today programme every night this week, on PM, sorry, every night this week, explaining to everyone how all that's going to work. The trade unions, as you'd have read this week, uh, initially uh, have shown themselves unwilling to accept the proposal we made to them about trading uh, increment for incremental rises for uh, job protections. This is real, live, vigorous stuff. And whatever the pace of change you're involved in, you, I think you need to understand that you're at the, the start of the curve that just needs, that's just starting to move up and uh, will accelerate for good and with lots of turbulence from now on. So it is the end of the beginning and it's the end of the phony war period and it's going to about to get real. We remain of the view that the broad analysis we made about what we had to do in response to that is right. And as you know, it's been crawled over by all, all sorts of people, not least the King's Fund in the, uh, the report that's part of the material today, but also other commentators. And there are some variations at the margin, but broadly, 
the kind of game plan that we've set out looks continues to look about right. Uh, not that it's an easy game plan. I mean, the NHS is either a an efficient or a cheap service by international standards, probably some combination of both of those. We don't start from some position by international comparators in which we're bloated in terms of, of funding. And no other healthcare system in the world that we can see has tackled um, on a long-term basis changing the relationship between the quality of care and the growth and its cost. You can see in the Canadian experience a short-term change of that profile, although caught up pretty rapidly afterwards. So that, I mean, Chris is sitting next to one of the world experts on this. The, the Germans have certainly done more than many people to change the relationship, although I think unification had some role to play in some of that analysis. So this is a, a task that swims against the tide of the relationship between the cost and the volume and quality of healthcare internationally. But, it's a, but the tide will have to change in this direction. For those, for those countries like ours that value universal healthcare systems, our universal healthcare system on the current growth profile of expenditure will become unsustainable at some point. It's highly debatable what that point is, and the US teaches you just how far you can go in gearing the whole of a nation's economy and its GDP to healthcare costs, and even then find it a difficult problem to solve. But it is a, I think it's a, it's a factually correct statement to say that the level of growth of costs in Western healthcare systems is unsustainable. It's only a question about when there is change. And if we want to protect, as I'm sure you like I do, a universal healthcare system, then being beginning to tackle this relationship between growth in cost and quality is, is our great leadership task. In terms of the detail of what we set out in those analyses, um, again, there's um, plenty of, of variation around in terms of the detail of various percentages you to ascribe to different solutions, and there is no, there's no unequivocal right answer to that. But very broadly, um, around half of the solution being in the efficiency within the current design of services, so staff productivity, uh, the way we procure drugs, the way we use people, the way we buy other goods and services. Even the evidence from the upper quartile of our own good practice in the UK, let alone international good practice, suggests that something approaching half of the 20 billion problem we've got is resolvable by attacking those. And that's why we look at tools like tariff to begin to drive that kind of activity. But only about half. And so it suggests that we have to look to some more fundamental redesign of the way we provide services, and most particularly the pattern of services which hospitalises large numbers of people with chronic diseases or urgent care problems, where there's really strong evidence that more community-based preventative models of care are both better for people and more cost-effective, if, of course, you take the costs out uh, at the other end and redistribute them. So about half of it in classic kind of efficiency productivity work and about half of it in a major redesign of care for this country. That's also can be helpful in terms of the sequencing because the redesign of care is not a simple short-term business and we need in terms of sort of messages today you need to have a kind of a twin track relentless focus on delivering the things you can do now in terms of driving out cost in agency staff in goods and services but doing now also the first stage of the long-term change, not delaying that for, for two years, because it needs to start delivering in years three and four to some extent. 
Um, we've published all that evidence. We've published the kind of broad game plan, and I say it's been crawled over by many people. If you haven't looked at it, I encourage you to do so and think about how it applies to the thing that you are responsible for, which will vary depending on the nature of your particular responsibilities. But that broad game plan remains. And so we feel that the answer to the question, is it a credible thing to do, is yes, it is a credible thing. There is sufficient evidence to show in a numerically credible, although not unequivocally correct way, that the problem is capable of being solved, drawing on what we already know. And so the much deeper question for us and the question of this event today is, uh, how would you do it? Given that you've got some idea what to do, how would you do it? And that is the really, really tough question. And again, we've set out a kind of an approach and have been trying to pursue it, um, which has a number of clear strands, and I'll, I'll uh, try and describe those to you. And while I'm doing it, try and give you that kind of honest assessment of where I think each of those pieces of work is. We started, uh, most obviously, in just trying to engage people in believing this was the right thing to do. So we run a, a, the biggest sort of engagement program we've ever run and continue to do that with um, taking literally hundreds of opportunities from the centre to talk about this. And I know that's been amplified and replicated throughout the service. Um, at one level, we've been unbelievably successful in that QUIP has sort of a, a thing oft talked about is everywhere. I, I see um, ad job adverts for QUIP leads and... Uh, so at, at one level, and, and the data we've got in terms of our polling about people's knowledge that there is an issue has been remarkably successful. Um, but you need to be very cautious, and we certainly are, about what that success means. And I, I draw you to a number of obvious shortfalls in that process of en engagement and understanding. One is I still hear extraordinary descriptions, including from very senior people, of what the QUIP challenge is. I still hear people including at a senior level, who believe that our budgets have been reduced by £20 billion. Not that our budgets are broadly staying the same and the growth in um, demographic growth and new technologies means that we need to generate the capability to uh, be more efficient in order to respond to that. In other words, if we carry on providing services as we are today, we would expect to be £20 billion overspent by 2015. Um, which is very different to saying our budgets have been slashed by a share of 20 billion today. And if leaders haven't got that right, then we shouldn't be surprised that staff are confused. And um, I was listening to um, Radio 4 or 5, driving in the car on Sunday morning to hear a major national clinical leader saying NHS budgets have been slashed by 20 billion pounds. This is a sort of throwaway remark from a highly intelligent, credible colleague. So it relates to the fact that what we're trying to get across is a complicated message. It's not a nice simple piece of up and down. It's complicated, but we will continue to try and do that. Our, our polling also tells us on the engagement something that I'm sure you know is true, which is that there are two problems. It's not particularly deep, the knowledge and understanding of what needs to be done. So you penetrate below the levels of those engaged in these leadership discussions, and unsurprisingly, uh, people's understanding of what's going on isn't massively comprehensive. Now, that's probably just a, a general truth about the level of interest of frontline colleagues in many sort of abstract national debates and discussions. But um, we will, through you, continue to try and do more to engage in that. And then most importantly of all for me on the engagement side, I think the position is that we achieved a better than we've ever done before 
support in principle from many people, professions and partners, that we needed to tackle the issue of efficiency in the NHS. We've got fantastic support from many of the colleges and uh, partners in industry and so on to that. But when you convert that to practice, when you do the things that you are talking about, people hate it. And so you're seeing some of that happening now. It's not surprising, which is as we convert those ideas um, for change into actually doing them, people find that their support for them is tested. And it's because it involves things that people have worked for their lives to create, involves things that people wouldn't choose to, to, to do to their colleagues they work with, it involves changes in direction um, um, and so on, which people are sceptical and unsure about. So now that's surprising. I don't say it as a negative comment, but we will experience that kind of pushback in terms of actually making real some of the change. I read um, with interest um, over Christmas, thinking about long-term conditions, I read with interest Enoch Powell's Water Towers speech in the 60s. Now, you know, it's a problematic speech for two reasons. One, it's given by Enoch Powell, who, of course, has this terrible overlay of uh, race politics, um, which completely kind of overpowers everyone's perception of him, understandably, in terms of his history. And it's full of very, very um, unpleasant language reading now about um, people with mental health problems and learning disabilities. But nevertheless, it's a remarkable speech about the change in the basic modality of mental health services in this country. And he's acknowledging in that speech the huge pushback from people who care deeply about caring for people with mental health problems about suggesting that we shouldn't do that by providing hundreds and thousands of inpatient beds for mental health people. And I think we're experiencing some of that same deep, in, deep emotional and intellectual journey about describing a pattern of change in care, which is uh, that great colleagues, good colleagues, are finding it very difficult. So the engagement stuff has both been remarkably successful, but will be tested enormously as we go forward and uh, will come under enormous strain as people face up and think through and work out together the reality of that actually happening. second thing um, we did, of course, was try and get everybody's sort of local planning processes focused on delivering quality and productivity, hence the big drive to get PCT plans coordinated by SHAs um, all focused on how they were going to deliver QUIP. Again, I'd make the same diagnosis. In one sense, incredibly successful, kind of rebased people's planning ideas. Certainly lots of criticism of that. People accuse me of being far too bureaucratic and uh, pushing too hard, some of which may have been correct. And we're uh, trying now to streamline and integrate those processes so that they're both simpler for people but have as much focus on delivery. I think as we cross the gap between people having plans for what they want to do and doing them, we find the same issue, particularly as, of course, we've unleashed this whole wave of huge change on the organisations that we're responsible. And that's simply true. You know, David, David Nicholson has said repeatedly, were, were he given the choice about whether he wanted to add a load of structural change at the same time delivering Quip, he would have said no. But we are doing that. There are some positives, and I'm sure Earl Howe will have referred to them. I mean, um, all Quip plans, for example, are built on changing the pattern of urgent care. The track record of most PCTs in their current form of doing that is weak. Uh, we haven't made a success of that. And a, a, a reason that I think you could credibly speculate on that is that it was often very disconnected from the views of GPs about what care they should be providing. So in theory, if we make a success of GP commissioning, we could get progress on that. And one of the things that we are setting into the template for 
development of GP commissioning is how can you immediately begin to support the delivery of those elements of your quick plan. You won't be able to be approved as a consortia without answering that question credibly, not necessarily without some challenge, but credibly, how are you going to contribute to delivering those elements where you are absolutely best placed to make that um, happen, while at the same time providing lots of support and hopefully some freedom to do many, many other interesting, interesting things. Um, the other thing about local plans was that they highlighted again for me what happens is that we show that our capability when faced with a local problem to apply learning from elsewhere in the service or the world is appallingly low. But I'm talking about, I, I plan this to myself as to what I'm not having to go at you. I think it's part of our shared cultural problem, which is that we have a poor track record of seeking out and applying learning from our colleagues, um, and that this problem requires us to overcome it. We much where we have to look for good practice, we're prepared to go, I mean, there are some fantastic pieces of practice internationally, but we are prepared to go and see Kaiser or someone, so we should, but we're not prepared to go and see the best in this country. So the problem I talked about in terms of controlling demand, there are a relatively small number of PCTs who have made real strides in uh, not just stopping things, but in reshaping the pattern of care in South Central. Steve's here um, a combination of quite detailed, forensically applied things have made a difference to the pattern of emergency care very significantly in one of the most under, uh, under uh, overcapitation areas in the country. And yet people, that data is available and people's hunger to go out and look for it and learn and apply the lessons remains woefully low. So again, uh, it's not because you or I are bad people, but it is a part of our culture, this kind of relentless independence of thought and spirit, and I'd encourage you to think about getting over it. So we have... Decent plans in place in most of the country, but the task of now implementing them is very challenging indeed anyway, made more difficult by the change and by some of our cultural issues. One of the other major things I'm doing, and we'll say more about nationally in the next few weeks, is trying to respond very positively to how you sustain capacity through this change. Because unless we take actual action to sustain the capability that we've got in local health communities and PCTs, then we frankly have no ability to deliver the next two years while our new commissioning colleagues gear up and take control of the agenda. And so we're working very hard uh, with colleagues across the country, and we'll be saying more about that in the next few weeks, to sustain and protect PCT change capability. Um, so that's local plans. But all the local plans contain common elements, and that's why we set up some sort of national programs of support, which I know um, um, Freddie Howe referenced this morning, to try and help people where there were common issues. And we're beginning to see those bear fruit in many areas, although, again, speaking to you honestly, it's been a challenge to try and get the balance of those right. I, I often say that in the NHS over the last decade, which I'm, again, talking about myself as well as you, uh, I think we've developed two models of change. Um, number one is that the centre will tell us what to do and will beat us to death if we don't do it. And number two is let me get on by myself. Those are the two basic mindsets of change. They're both very immature mindsets. And when you say, you know, we need local plans, we need those joined up with other people, and we need some national support available to those so that people can shortcut learning, it's very easy to say, but very difficult to configure to make that real and active. And I think as a result, we've got some really strong results coming through, but not everywhere, and it's a continual challenge to do it. So you've got uh, John Oldham's work, John, one of the great sort of clinical leaders of... Uh, clinical leaders of change we've got, leading the work on 
long-term conditions now producing a whole series of very exciting exemplars that we're trying to link with the kind of work that people like Chris have been leading in terms of identifying what works across the world. We've got the back office work that the Foundation Trust Network led for us showing um, that although people say there's not much money in back office, there's actually a huge slice of action to go for if people could, could get over the fact that they must run their own small HR procurement payroll departments. This um, um, pre-industrial revolution mindset we've got of small weaver's sheds, all independent, that we need to break out of. And um, I also have a personal view that some of that will evolve into more substantial and organized chains of providers having single systems for safety and procurement um, that are cost effective. We've got Muir Gray's work on the Atlas of Variation, which if you're a commissioner, tells you absolutely the first half a dozen places you should go to in terms of where you are wasting money providing the worst care for your population. Very powerful document and one which we will continue to produce as part of providing more tools um, highlighting um, where to go. You've got Maxine Powers work launching the, the next wave of, of safety work across the country. So we're, we're trying to provide tools and expertise. We're not telling you what to do and beating to death, beating you to death if you don't do it. If you don't want to join in work done regionally and nationally, it's absolutely your call. But I don't understand what your analysis is. Um, if you are doing work and your basic model is that you're going to figure out the solution, all of the solutions yourself, then I don't understand how you think you've got time to do it against the scale and pace of the problem we've got. So we're providing tools. If you don't like them, tell us how to make them better or find some other way of doing it. But please, as you go through this journey, don't labor under the belief that there, are, there aren't systems of support for you uh, or that you shouldn't or that you're some kind of, you demonstrate your prowess in this work by... Um, doing it independently. Um, I do sometimes tell the story of doing the top management program, cabinet office top management program, which is a wonderful thing, which is a 50% public sector, 50% private sector, and one of the people on the course being a spy, um, which is very exciting. And in fact, he told us he was a spy when he got drunk, which explained the last 50 years of British foreign policy. <laughs> and, uh, and, the, and the actual truth was he'd been a proper, he'd been a genuine proper spy working in the Far East, but he explained that the shelf life of a spy is very short because people find out who you are and, and you kind of can't carry on. So he'd, uh, you then had to do a desk job or you move out and do something else. And he moved out and was working in counter-industrial espionage in the electronics business, very lucrative profession, multi-million multi pound world industry, trying to prevent people stealing good process secrets from each other about how to make things better. And it shows, dates the story. I was a board member of the Modernization Agency and said, that's interesting, we have a multi-million pound enterprise trying to give secrets away free to people of how to improve their processes, and they don't want to know. When David Fillingham asked me how we should improve the spread of ideas, I said we should make them all secret. <laughs> and it's, just, it's kind of a joke, but it's not entirely a joke. And it's also an indictment, again, of kind of where we, where we are in terms of our hunger to learn. So, so national support programs, um, uh, some variable progress, but including um, solid progress overall and some, some fantastic pieces of work and tools, and I strongly encourage you, if you're not already, to get engaged, find out how they can help you, put more pressure on us to help, or find alternative routes and sources, of which one is here, of course, in the King's Fund, to get that kind of uh, help. Fourth element of what we've done is we've tried to line up the national processes to help drive this. By accident or design, and probably a combination of those, 
the kind of the levers in the system were configured for growth. That's kind of where we were. So tariff is in, was kind of implicitly set because we were trying to drive activity to drive down waiting times. Um, uh, and we've been busy trying to get those levers more lined up to support the change we're doing. So all the cries of protest about the marginal rate for emergency care are an interesting example of that. Um, and I speak as someone who was a Foundation Trust chief executive, so I'm, I, I, take, I take no um, tuition from my fantastic colleagues in that business. But, you know, the idea that we were going to pay a full cost of fuel, um, not necessarily to drive, but certainly to fuel this disproportionate growth in the English healthcare system and emergency demand um, was a nonsense. And we've changed those rules, albeit in a fairly crude way, to try and make that a much less remunerative business. It's half of a two-sided deal, which we now need to do the other half of, which is to begin to open up the creation and the application of tariffs which support maintenance of health for people and allow you to make a, a return on a business that's much less about churning through hospital activity and much more about providing great care. And whilst there are some good international exemplars of that, that's a slightly more long-term process, and uh, we're working on that. So we've tried to change the tariff system, and we'll continue to change the tariff system, both in terms of the pricing mechanisms, the way quality is engaged, and the fundamental basis of the prices uh, in, in terms of driving, that, uh, driving this change. We've tried to change the pay system. So the first half of that, which was relatively easy, was freezing pay. The second half, which you're very conscious, is more difficult, although not yet dead, which is trying to uh, achieve some change in terms and conditions, and particularly around increments in order to do a better deal on protecting jobs by suppressing pay. So I think, uh, again, we've got a, um, a good track record. In fact, we've made enough progress on that early stage equipped by moving the national levers to create a little bit more time in the process to deliver some of the longer-term change. That's, that shouldn't be used as a some kind of um, excuse to take our foot off the pedal, but it's uh, been helpful. And lastly, we've tried to do something about the I in equip which is the innovation bit. I'm not yet satisfied that we've got where we need to be, and I'd be very interested in your views. Partly, of course, from everything I've said earlier, the main thing about achieving our ends is that, is that the evidence would suggest we don't need a lot of ab initio sort of innovation to, to achieve it. If we just kind of made better use of what we already know, we'd be... Uh, hugely along the way and I've been, it's made me slightly nervous about overstressing innovation because everybody loves innovating, they just don't like rigorously implementing what we, what we know so it may be my fault that this hasn't had the, or partly my fault, the priority it deserves, but we are trying to do some more about sponsoring um, some specific innovations, so we hope to launch some um, prize funds which aim at getting industri our industry partners to focus on finding some solutions where they don't already exist to, to problems that we know are bedeviling us. We're trying to do some things in terms of exemplifying uh, areas of technology that we think will make a difference, and we're going to produce some exemplar technologies that we've been looking at with industry partners and try and make those happen at a reasonable way across the country in order to help people understand. Those range from, well, we don't know the final list yet, but examples of the sorts of things we've been talking about range from kind of very simple things like airline terminal-style check-in for outpatients, you know, allowing people to check in themselves rather than um, doing it with great waves of friendly, welcoming staff. I was, of course, the man who appeared on the front of the Daily Mail 
for the proposal which didn't even exist in the back office report about getting rid of all GP receptionists and unleashed, I think was, uh, David Nicholson, he was so proud of me that I'd unleashed a wave of support for GP receptionists across the country, which was a, a wonderful thing to have done. And, um, uh, and then we're also trying to think about the long-standing problem about how our IT infrastructure is going to unleash change. It was very informative to me when I started this job. One of the things I did was I went and talked to the leaders of a number of other industries about how they drove consistently for quality and value, which in many other sectors is just the, the norm. And they, to a person, relentlessly talked to me about one thing, which was technology. Talked about technology as the vehicle by which you enhance quality and unlocked value. And yet if you talk to leaders of the NHS like me, we don't think about technology, particularly in my view. The leaders of the NHS are not every day scanning the technological environment, wondering how the next technological innovation around the web or <coughs> communications technology or iPads or apps is going to unleash huge value. In the international healthcare movement, it's, also, it's not just an NHS problem. It's also true that it's just starting. We're just starting people to try and figure out how to uh, make use of that. But as a, um, as a generation of leaders... And given that this is a, a chronic problem we face, we're going to have to figure out how we begin to think about um, how technology will un unlock the long-term relationship between quality and value in healthcare. And uh, I, again, it's an area of your personal development I strongly encourage you to do. So, interesting times. The analysis of what we need to do remains reasonably robust, I think, and supported. It is now getting real, and we're going to enter choppy... Uh, sort of level five rapids as that begins to be real people's local health communities and nationally there is no way of taking this forward which isn't a bumpy ride. The real issue is how to do it and the issues we're facing nationally are the ones I would encourage you to think about how your all your processes of leading your, your trust your department, your system, your business are geared to demonstrating how quality and value are linked together and that is a change. How you are joining up with the right advice and support to make that reality because I believe there is no prospect of each individual organisation finding a solution to its own problems. And the last man standing mentality is a council of despair for the NHS um, and for patient care. Like us, how we're using the levers of, of money and people, how you're managing your people, changing the way resource flows around your organisation, uh, I think is critical to making a success of the next stage of the journey. You've got to line up the levers to support this activity, and they start, up line, they start off lined in the opposite direction. And our most entrepreneurial people, i.e. our doctors, understand precisely what signals those levers send and uh, change their work accordingly. And where it's necessary, and particularly because it does generate some enthusiasm and excitement, get involved in the innovation agenda. But sad to say, and I'll finish on a, I'll finish on a grinding, relentless point rather than an inspirational one, the solution is not so much an innovation. It's in our determination to relentlessly apply what we know. And... Uh, uh, I can say on a heartfelt basis that I wish you every success and need you to be successful in doing it. Thank you very much for your time.